Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome Bonnie Wright to the Mind Body Green podcast. At the age of nine, she was cast as Ginny Weasley in the Harry Potter film series after her brother suggested she audition. Along with acting, she is passionate about understanding other stories and sharing her own, which she is exploring through her new film on plastic pollution. Protecting the environment became a focus of hers after recognizing the environmental ramifications from society's obsession with convenience. Since then, she's made strides to reduce her use of single-use plastic, taken a course on sustainability at UCLA, and collaborated with a sustainable swimwear brand called Fair Harbor to launch new swimwear pieces. Bonnie, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So tell our audience a little bit about how you became an actor as a child. Was it always something you knew you wanted to do? How did it all evolve? Uh, Yeah, no, not at all. I think I was so young. I mean, I was nine when I got the part in the Harry Potter film. So I don't think thinking about a career or having any plan was had even crossed my mind. Um, I definitely was a kid that loved to be sort of involved in anything, be that sports or, you know, theater or arts. I was, I just loved taking part in anything. And I think that attitude of wanting to just take part was really what inspired me and made me open toward going for the audition. Yeah. So I had, um, I had an older brother, I have an older brother, and he had read um, the first two books of, of Harry Potter and really loved them. And we sort of knew and heard that they were making the films and that they were auditioning for the parts and different things. And he was like, you should go for this role in the book called Ginny Weasley. And I, being like an impressionable younger sister, just sort of believed it and agreed with anything he said. So my mum came home from work and, and my parents are not in the entertainment industry, they're in the design sort of industry. And I was like, mum, mum, can you get me an audition in in the Harry Potter films? And she called the publishers um, in the UK that was Bloomsbury and, and they gave the contacts to the casting directors and I had to send in photos of myself and a little sentence about why I'd want to be in the films and what character I wanted to play and then I had two auditions and I got the part. So it was all one of those things that even during the process of those two auditions. That um, seems really quick. Yeah, I mean, my character was so small at the beginning and I guess no one knew really the future of any of the characters because, you know, Joe Rowling hadn't written the full series yet. So for me, you know, I was only in one scene in that first film. So as opposed to obviously how I ended in the the end, um, I guess two auditions maybe was like, normal for the part that I was going for. Um, But I didn't even have any lines to read for the audition. Like I read other character lines, like it was that small. And I, I, again, like in that same way that I was quite open and just loved taking part. I, we just loved the experience of being in a production office going for an audition. Like that was just as much fun as there needed to be. So when I did get the part, I was honestly like incredibly surprised and shocked and, and, you know, didn't really know what then, you know, I was, you get the part and you've never been on a film set, like, you, you're just learning everything <laughs> so fast. And up until that point, had you been acting professionally in other ways? No, not at all. Wow. Like, literally just school plays and things like that. 
Yeah. Great advice from your big brother. Yeah, exactly. He should be a casting director. <laughs> so you hear so much about child actors and sometimes they don't evolve into having amazing adulthoods and experiences and that it's a really rough road. You seem to have turned out great. What was the special sauce that made it all happen? You know, I think the beauty of those films is that we were all, you know, I wasn't the only child within a, an adult world of a set. Like we were all children in that together and we were all very much experiencing that together. So in our own weird way, we kind of still had that dynamic and network that you have at school because, you are you know, you have other kids your own age to sort of, you know, have... have not kill that sense of play, I guess. That sense yeah. of play was still very much alive. And and we were just very well held and looked after by the production. And, and in the sense that, you know, I continued my education and my schooling all the way through college. And I, you know, I never felt that I had to choose between now. It was like, this was my life. And now I had to sort of put on hold my childhood or education. Like there was a duality that allowed me to do both. Um, I also think... You know, I didn't have to relocate anywhere. I still went home to my home in London because we just went, you know, when I went to the studios, it was just a car ride away. So I was able to kind of keep some sense of normal normal kind of life, I guess. But, um, yeah, and I think that's, you know, I think that's the same for all of us, really. Everyone's kind of in their own way now found, like, what they want to do. And, but it definitely is, like, the foundation of, of what I'm inspired to do now and and the kind of lessons that I learn on that set are so part of me. So how did you get interested in environmental issues? Yeah. Which I know you're hugely passionate yes. about. <laughs> um, I guess with all things, they kind of, you know, it starts mm, at a sort of young kind of age. I think that idea of, of waste was something in a kind of very metropolitan like city household. We didn't really have in this idea that you know, everything was kind of day to day. Like we didn't ever go, we weren't a family that went on a huge grocery shop and had two weeks worth of food in the refrigerator. Like our refrigerator was like tiny in in, in a sort yeah. of city kitchen. And it was more in that kind of European way that you sort of buy to eat that day with this idea that you kind of understand what you're kind of consuming. So I think that idea was already just something like not, you know, waste not, want not. It's yeah. this idea that I had and then we lived in London but my family have a house on the coast on the English Channel in England and every single weekend we'd go to the beach so just I guess a sense of I gained so much you know inspiration creativity from that environment and that surrounding and and the tide goes out really far so I always understood the kind of changing and and cycles that exist within nature and I think when we look at how wrong our sort of consumption cycles have now become with this very much this kind of single use convenience way we've kind of made our you know way we're living quite linear right and I think this idea of circles and cycles is something that sits with me a lot better I think from either nature cycles or natural cycles or or just it makes more sense um to me so I think when I see how far we've come and that's of no fault of anyone's really it's just this kind of how we're all operating in this way that we're all very transient we're moving from one place to the next like settling down to eat something or drink something in this convenient way is is just shifted and it's different but I don't think that means we can't sort of go back to a more sort of reusable repurposing lifestyle and way and then I 
I also surf a lot, so I spend a lot of time in the water. Yeah. In California, so I have seen, you know, firsthand just the the sort of single-use plastics and all types of um, pollution that floats in the water that ends up in the beach and and also just obviously comes from waterways. It runs off the land, off landfills, cities, um, and into our rivers and then into our water. So I've done a lot of, I've been very um, fortunate to do different trips with different organizations to just really understand firsthand sort of what we do now with this understanding and how best to sort of tackle the issue because it's like you know do you turn the tap off on on the production of new plastics or do you clean up what's already there it's this you know there's so many different angles to look at this right. issue when you talk of things like circles and cycles it sounds almost spiritual like mm-hmm. and is that how you think of your love of the environment yeah i think how we mindfully think and feel and react to one another or how we mindfully consume and buy things to mindfully kind of lower our you know impact on the earth and and on ourselves really i think it is all very connected and i would say yeah it's a, it's my own sort of connection to spirituality in this cycle sense the interconnectedness of things and to also not lose power in our choices. I think so many people can be like, oh, the issue is just so large. I, you know, my daily choices mean nothing. Right. And I think that is a, you know, loss of connection of realizing how interconnected things are. Even if your small choice seems so small and insignificant, it does all connect. And to me, that is a, a cycle and a sense of spirit that exists within me to kind of, make me feel sort of sane about the day I think just to make me feel that you know we count really and what are some of those steps that you've taken in your own life to reduce waste yeah um it's been a really interesting journey over the last I think maybe year or two you know first really single-use plastics whether or not you know the first key I think obvious thing is you know just completely saying no full stop to um single-use plastic bottles whether or not then it was kind of getting all of the reusable things, like a reusable cups for coffee or water or ice drinks or my own utensils that I carry with me or a metal straw or all those yep. things that you can, you know, clean and wash and reuse and have in your bag and, and just be ready. You just got to think a little bit further ahead of your day. And then I started to think about how I could reduce it in my home. So whether or not that was my beauty products, um, my household sort of cleaning products, so it's been a really interesting job. What do you I mean, do on the beauty front? Because I feel like there's been yeah. a lot of progress on household cleaning fronts in mm-hmm. terms of getting larger supplies so you're not, you know, refilling every three or four weeks. Yeah. So I, for instance, you know, only buy completely sort of packageless soap for both my cool. face and just body, different ones, or even I have a shaving soap that's complete package free. Um, and then for like shampoo and conditioner, I have ones that you basically you know, use and refill, yep. like a company that you can send them away or you go to a refill station. Um, and then make up most things I've tried to have either ones where you can get refills of that brand or ones that are in glass and metal. So things yep. that you, we know that we can recycle. Um, and, you know, certain things it's like, you know, do you already have something that exists that works that might be plastic? But right. I own it already, so I'm not going to throw it away to get the the better version because I already have have it. Um, And that was a thing as well. I think it's so overwhelming to begin these journeys of trying to reduce your packaging or single-use plastics that I think you have to take 
one department at a time and not be overwhelmed to try and just eradicate everything. Yeah. Or in the same way, I remember before I switched to that kind of shampoo and conditioner, I made very sure that I used every ounce of, you know, product I already owned um, before I made that step in sure. that world. Um, or it's things like, you know, it's not plastic razors. It's I have a metal razor that you just change the blades and those blades can be recycled. Um, I'm trying to think about what other things. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I mean, it's it's an exciting time that so many more products are becoming available um, that are more sustainable and recyclable. And I think hopefully the more popularly these choices become, then the more affordable they'll become. Because I think, you know, it's it's I, I know that I have the freedom of choice to make these choices sure. to buy these things but i think until there's a higher demand for them the price can't go down because the production cost you know has to go down in order for it to be more accessible and i think until we reach that you know on a systemic level i don't think it can change getting closer but yeah still yeah. have some ways to go yeah rumor has it you have a pollution journal Oh, do I? Pollution journal. <laughs> Is that really? No, I don't know. I was like, do I need to have one? I think that would just make me feel really... Um, although, I guess you'd feel... I don't know how you'd even... It's interesting. I actually, the other day, had to um, calculate my carbon footprint. I just started this UCLA course on sustainability. and In your free time? Yeah, in my cool. evenings. Um and it's quite, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I'm, you know, there's so many different departments of different emissions that are different things and you have to sort of put in all these lifestyle things and it gives you all these uh, statistics. And, you know, I've tackled this department of 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 waste and single-use plastics, but obviously with the lifestyle I have and the work I do, I travel a lot. Right. So, you know, I'm on a plane <laughs> all the time and that's like a lot of emissions. So it's this push and pull that you can get so overwhelmed and you can take on this collective guilt I think yeah very very easily um and I think you just have to you know sometimes step back and not look at statistics and numbers and things like that and just run on a feeling sometimes and what are some of the reasons we talked a little bit about cost that do you think it's hard for people to start making these simple changes yeah I think um I think it's a commitment sort of idea I think it's again I think it's so deeply rooted in our convenient ease we kind of always I think trying to find ways to ease our stresses and the things we've got to add on our to-do list that if we've also got to, oh I've got to now feel bad that I've forgotten my cup or my utensils it's just something that people can kind of panic to not want to put on their list of maybe already mounting stresses so I think it's that worry but I think from what I've found is the minute you work something into your routine, you know, as simple as, you know, when you're a kid finally realizing that brushing your teeth is like a good thing and yeah. you realize you do it every day, twice a day without thinking about it, it's just part of your thing. And I think I totally agree that these changes, whether or not it's bringing your cup on your way to work to get your coffee and your reusable cup, they just become part of you in the same way that we don't forget our phone when we leave the house or our <laughs> Metro card or right. all those things. So I think... I think people will be surprised, at, you know, give it a week or two and you're quite quickly, they're just immediate things that you grab for. Um, I think other things might be just the access to, I mean, I guess I said that the access to them, whether or not it's financial or also just finding somewhere that you can buy that from. Because I think, I mean, I know different, you know, online e-commerce kind of worlds of things are beginning to change in the way that they're packaged, but it's always this thing that like, 
I find sometimes like humorous that you try and buy a reusable thing and then it's mailed to you in plastic <laughs> and you're like oh in um, a box yeah but I guess those things are changing slowly but um and then other things that hold back I mean there is a resistance I think sometimes I mean there is a resistance not to the extremity of like climate change denier resistance but right. I think also just to like no, like, I don't think that's going to do anything for right. the environment in the same sense that a lot of people said that with the big sort of push that was done around straws. It was like, such an well, what's the point? Movement. You know, there's a whole <laughs> cup and there's everything, you know, it's, and so it's just realizing that that's just a way in. That's yeah. just a kind of story and a very powerful image of that straw that has become now a thing that quite quickly now has become a known thing that, you know, you sort of refuse or have alternatives. So the I think, speed at which that became such yeah. a taboo is really exciting. It's amazing, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think with all things, you know, when you look into our past of of things we now realize aren't good for our health and, and we think, oh gosh, it's wild to think once upon a time it was, you know, celebrated to smoke a cigarette where now <laughs> it's like, you know, that's not, or right. even done in, pu- you know, in public spaces. Or, so I think we can, we've seen these big shifts when we realize the connectedness to everything so I think I do believe that we're heading towards shifts as the the straw kind of story has told us and what do you think are some of the most pressing issues facing the planet today what keeps you up at night as it relates to the planet um well I I think there's so much obviously disproportionately shared wealth within this world and I think there's so much sadly behind our sort of political leaders across the world really that's so governed by Money, which sadly is very fueled by um, fossil fuels. And I think, you know, until we begin to find transparency in the people that we see to lead our country and and vote for and and really sort of believe in, I I think people are going to feel pretty lost. I think people, you know, we live, we're so used to living in a democracy that we want to look up to a leader and believe that we understand them transparently for what they believe in and where they get their funding from and and what they're trying to push and I think that's become so massively skewed by the sort of flow of money and where it's coming from that it feels I think for a lot of people so kind of dirty that political world and I think until and things are changing and I think we're we're living in such an exciting time that so many you know young people are really coming through um whether or not it's not yet in the age to be political leaders, but I think we are at a time where I've never been more excited because of what the youth are showing us, whether or not that's the the school um, climate strikes that have yeah. been happening in, um, in the UK. We've had the Extinction Rebellion, and so there's just these huge shifts and movements of people that I didn't feel. When, when I was younger, I didn't feel like we really had anything to kind of fight for really there was no sort of real sense of conflict and injustice or feeling that we had to go and stand up for something and so I think I'm excited that that kind of like dormant behavior is beginning to sort of shift and people are really moving and and realizing the power of you know voice and and I think obviously we've got social media to thank really for a lot of that yeah no there's tremendous energy and we see it here within our audience too at Mind Body Green in that there's always been a green in Mind Body Green, but there's so much more passion around the mm-hmm. environmental topics that we cover on the site now than yeah. in the past decade. Yeah, and I think with all things, I think it's, I, I mean, like I was saying, transparency in terms of 
you know, in politics, but I think it's the same in brands. You know, we're investing in a brand. It's our right to know, you know, how they've manufactured something or the supply chain behind that. I think, you know, we had that a lot in fashion. That was in the fashion industry that obviously is sadly incredibly polluting industry, but a lot of people began to realize, wait a second, what's the the conditions of the people making this clothing, where did it come from? And I think now that's shifting. And then that obviously happened, I think, in in the food world. I think that processed food, GMO, that world was like, okay, we want to understand what this food is. If it is processed, how, what's in it? And, you know, you can begin to sort of understand what ingredients are or processes are. And I think that's now really happening in the, just generally across all sort of consumer markets. And what brands do you think are getting it right now? whether it's in the food space or fashion or you know I don't know I mean I think I think the brands that I always like people who don't pretend to say that everything they're doing is like 100% sustainable I mean if they are that's incredible but I think it's it's more I'm more interested in brands like I see where we're going wrong we're going to tackle this. We see this is still to work on, but like we know where our faults are and we are working with you as the consumer to try and figure this out. And that's usually, I guess maybe because I like that because often in a bigger brand, which I think is where like the real shifts will happen because that's just And the real change. Yeah. And so I think people who, and brands that do do that is interesting because it shows flaws and and challenges they're facing, which is just more human and I, I think more... I will look up to that brand more if they're transparent about it. In the same way that, honestly, I would look up more to, you know, a politician or an MP or something if they said, look, I really want to change this thing in our society, but I don't really know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to try and I'll try a different method and I'll try a different method rather than someone's like, we're going to change all these things in, you know, the four years I'm here. (laughs) And it's like, are you? Do you know? You know, I I prefer that kind of sense of, yeah, the transparency. Yeah. But I think a big brands, I mean, you know, you have different big fast food chains from, you know, Burger King to Carl Jr.'s adding, you know, <laughs> vegan burgers to their yeah. menu. I mean, that's a huge, if you can inspire someone to like not have, you know, red meat one day and have a plant-based meal or something, that's a huge shift in the methane that's coming out of, you know, production of farming and yeah. And doing it at uh, accessible, affordable prices. I think so. And I think really that is, I mean, the work that I've done with Greenpeace and speaking to campaigners there that have been working on this project for years or across different campaigns within the you know environmental sphere, they are of that sort of belief too that we can all speak to those around us that sometimes can feel like preaching to a choir or, you know, already speaking to a converted people who are trying their best. But I think until we reach further to people who might not even know yet that single-use plastics are a problem or that they have any control or it's just not on their agenda that's where the shift will happen because I don't think we can change we live in a consumer world I'm not I don't think we're going to we're not going to not become consumers but I think we just need to change the consumption of those things and also challenge the people we're getting these things from I mean I went to Coca-Cola headquarters last year with Greenpeace with this huge petition that you know thousands of people had signed and it's like you're sitting on so much power and time and money that has the ability to look into phasing out single-use plastics introducing refilling stations yeah you know you sit on this just huge you know 
organization that has all this power you know it's it's the they're the people that need to shift and right. and i think in that world on greenpeace do this quite well as they sort of put people up against one another in the same sense that you know you know if you say peps to pepsi oh coca-cola are going to do this like why aren't you, you doing it and they are quite competitive obviously right. so it is weirdly almost starting a kind of conflict between them to to say who's going to be the clever one and, and go first really. who's going to do the good work yeah so switching gears a bit, part of what brings you to New York mm-hmm. is swimwear. Yes. How did you get interested in swimwear? Yeah, um, well, I guess I spent a lot of time in the water. Um, but I was introduced to um, a company called Fair Harbor, yep. uh, an East Coast-based company, and run by a brother and sister, um, Jake and Caroline. And I was introduced to them from a friend who thought I would who was advising them at the time and thought I'd be interested in their work because they started as a board short company for men's at first, making all their clothing out of recycled single-use plastic bottles, um, respun into a fabric that would create these shorts. And I think on average, like a pair of board shorts has 11 recycled plastic bottles in them. And they were interested in collaborating. They were just about to launch their first um, women's wear collection. And I was like, cool, well, I'd love to wear and try them on and see if they work and I like them and they fit. Um, And if you can actually surf in them too. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So last summer I spent wearing them and they were great. I tried different shapes and fits. And then from there, we then had a discussion about, you know, which shapes of those would we take and sort of slightly alter. And we chose to just do uh, a one piece and a bikini, both of which are... Um, on the more like sporty shape size that very much kind of full coverage rather than sort of skimpy kind of outfits. Yeah. Um, and I was inspired by, well, I wanted, I guess for me, I love the kind of softness and the sort of rough volatileness of the ocean. I wanted to create and find a design that would embody that feeling that I have towards the water, this kind of hard and soft edges. So I chose... Um, a sea urchin shell design because before you usually find a sea urchin which is just this round kind of shell it once had loads of quite sharp <laughs> spikes to it so right. I quite like this idea that it had this sharpness and then when you find it it's quite soft and round as yeah. a shell so we inspired by I really love sort of Chinese and Japanese indigo sort of block printing and, and dyeing so inspired by the indigo color and that block printing we worked on a design that had this sea urchin shell print and um Yeah, and that's how the design came about. And I've been here in New York launching it. We launched it last night um, at Lauren Singer's shop, the package-free shop, which uh, is like my heaven in a shop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we did that last night and they came out today. So, um, yeah. Awesome. And what role do you think fashion has in being part of the sustainability solution? Well, I think it's hard. I think those two words are quite incongruous. I don't think there's anything sustainable about fashion. And I'm not... um, Uh, deluded to think that there is I think I'm very aware of that but I think you know we are going to continue to produce new clothes because as I said we're just in that's where we are we're in that kind of of consuming a new um, world Um, however much we should try and buy secondhand vintage clothing I think we're always going to be needing new things but specifically obviously like swimwear and things like that but I think if you you know wearing you know, clothes become such a reflection of, of our choices and Personal our character. Values. And, yeah. And I think if you can wear something that starts a conversation and makes you think about sort of where and why you've chosen that and where it comes from, then I think that's a positive thing. I think if it can um, 
you know, not only when someone asks you, oh, I love that swimsuit, you know, you think, oh, thanks. And, you know, it's actually made of recycled plastic bottles rather than just assuming accepting. I think we all like to tell stories around everything that we do. And I think right. it's nice to have to have that. I think, um, I mean, it's a hot, there's so many different layers to the kind of manufacturing processes of the fashion industry that, you know, do you attack kind of the fabric? Are you looking at the dyeing? Are you looking at the the living and working conditions? Are you looking at where it's made so it doesn't have to travel really far? There's so many different elements. So I think what's been interesting about this is just looking at the material. And obviously this isn't going to solve the single-use plastic pollution issue. There's so many, there's, you know, billions of plastic bottles floating around that need to be repurposed. But I think that's not what this collection is about it's right. as i say it's a conversation starter um and and really there are exciting technologies and fabrics and things happening with recycling now i think for so long so much sadly of a percentage of our recycling isn't recycled or can't be recycled because of the type of plastic it is or the combination it is so i think if a demand for these new materials begin to develop and increase then hopefully more things will be recycled. Like obviously, I mean, I think it's like a shocking like five or nine percent of plastic is recycled. So wow. yeah, so it's like if it becomes in more demand, are then new recycling plants going to open that are going to take more of this recycling and be able to put them into these new fabrics or or sell them as the kind of you know re you know when they go back into like the granules of of the plastic. That's, I guess, a hope that it that it's needed and wanted more. I think that's the only way that things, the more in demand they become in a positive way, then that's how we're going to begin to shift. And how do you reconcile fashion and being an actor in Hollywood, where I'm sure you have to appear on red carpets mm-hmm. and, um, you know, dress a certain way? Do you have any kind of rules that you live by as it goes to your personal wardrobe and how you make all those choices? Yeah, I mean, you know, you can do things and it's you know, God forbid that you'd wear something twice is such a thing of people. And and for me, I, you know, I, I really believe in the quality of clothes and, and how if it's been made well, it'll last a really long time and I'll get lots of wear out of it. Yeah. So I've always had that idea with clothing. Like I would prefer to invest in one great piece of clothing that's not going to wear down and it's not a fast fashion kind of world now obviously you're going to have different things that you need to dress for so whether or not that's you know the fortunate space to be able to borrow things and and not buy them and just give them back and then more like a press sample that you just borrow or you know i've been trying to more recently borrow things that are vintage i have a friend that has like a salon that's all like high couture style like vintage collection that she has called happy isles so i i've been borrowing some things from her it's hard i mean you know you you go to events or you wear things that are inadvertently you know publicizing and and inspiring consumption (laughs) so it's it's a difficult space and world to go into I think again you've got to like pick your battles and you can't get overwhelmed by things so I think it's like where you can just wear the same outfit redress it restyle it or borrow something of a friend or or of a you know a collection of of vintage things but yeah and if you were to give three pieces of advice of easy things people can do that will have an impact on our planet for years to come where, where should people start oh well I think if you have an already is to invest in a reusable water bottle. I think that's such a basic 
Uh, I like clean canteen and I like, yeah, I like, this is, this is my travel one. This is just my <laughs> REI, like camping one. <laughs> it was the lightest one while I travel rather than like a meta one. And yeah. then I also like, if you like drinking out of glass, BKR is a company that yep. are glass. So yeah, it kind of depends on your, I think everyone's quite particular. They find totally. what they like. And you know, things, you don't have to go out and buy some really fashionable, fancy bottle. You can, you know, wash out a peanut butter jar and put the lid on and use a jar as your reusable thing. You know, we don't have to, they don't have to be a statement bottle. It can be anything. <laughs> right. And then one of my favorite things, honestly, is a um, this bamboo utensil set that I carry with me that's by a company called To Go Wear. Yeah. And it has, you know, the knife, fork, spoon and chopsticks. And I had that with me always. I never get caught having to use plastic utensils. Nice. Um, that's really useful. Another thing I really enjoy, which is quite hard to do sometimes, is I really now enjoy collecting my compost and taking it to the local garden and composting. Um, so if you can Google your you know, local neighborhood, if there's a community garden, or maybe already your, your borough and your area take away um, composting, you will massively reduce your waste. I mean, I have. I mean, just I don't put much in my kind of regular landfill bin anymore because so much is taken to compost. And there's something really full and beautiful about seeing the cycle of taking that out of the ground and realizing there's still so much nutrients in the skin and peel and offcuts of those vegetables and returning them to the soil. So I'm I think sure that also really makes lovely. you very mindful of how much food you're bringing into your sure. house, and what you're using, not yeah. using. And you think, oh, it's probably been a good week if there's more of those kind of things in there and <laughs> right. not kind of packaged foods. But I think I think with all things, we're all so, so many, there's so many ingrained systems in our own self that I think in, we can get so frustrated and, t and sort of bogged down with the system, the man, the kind of, you know, the big... <laughs> big corporations, the governments, the, the you know, different things that we're paralyzed by. But I think first, just to see your own systems or habits of systems or or limitations that you think that you have because you can't have something or, oh no, I couldn't do that. I'm not good enough to remember bringing my water bottle. That's right. just already your own system that you could probably break that right. pattern of thought. And I think that's how, for me, it's connected so much to, you know, how, what I understand as mindfulness and and spirituality is that it's like how much is just this how much of this is just in my own head that I could maybe overcome I do love the cell phone analogy because I think mm -hmm. it does make it uh, yeah really easy and doable you're not going to yeah. forget your phone you're not going to forget your keys yeah just add another of those things to your <laughs> list and you'll be doing really good yeah so we already talked about what keeps you up at night mm -hmm. as it relates to the planet and the climate what gets you excited in the morning to get out of bed yeah, I guess for my whole kind of working life and childhood, it's telling stories for me. You know, it was obviously acting at first. And then when I went to college, I, I went to film school. And Where'd you and go to college? US or abroad? I went in back at home in London. Cool. Yeah. So University of the Arts London is our like main art school. And so I studied, yeah, film and television. I majored and graduated in directing and writing. And, and since then have been doing music videos and short films and web series and and now kind of going into the more feature film sphere. And yeah, I guess I just wake up wanting to understand other people's stories, understand my stories, understand sort of how to find a sort of correlation between sentiments, feelings, events, people, and sort of what and why I'm drawn to certain things. Um, 
at the moment, this is actually the film that I'm have been working on for a while. It's like the first film of mine that really connects my love for the environment, my fear for the future with my more narrative storytelling. Yeah. Storytelling. So this film is going to be, I mean, it's very much like a genre sort of monster thriller movie, but it is essentially about plastic pollution. Awesome. So it's the first time I've ever taken that and really found a narrative sort of, you know, non-fictional I mean fictional story out of that an amalgamation of all your passions yeah so yeah I guess that just every day I'm excited to keep pushing that collaborating with the people I do I mean I'm not very good spending a lot of time on my own even though I actually do spend a lot of time on my own I'm very much someone who loves to collaborate and work you know alongside people and 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 that's what I love about film that's what keeps me going is just those conversations about ideas and concepts and stories and like how to push those and and I think, you know, sometimes you can be in the entertainment industry and you think, is this all needed? Is this all very kind of, you know, so much ego attached to the entertainment industry in the same way that you were saying with, you know, dressing to do something. But I think I then always come back to knowing also the power of storytelling through right. mediums as far reaching as film. And I think that's what's always I've loved about sitting in a movie theater is is across time, space, languages, demographics, film is something that people will continue to go to. And I really know and want to keep going in that world because I know that there's there's room and space to bring these topics in, in the same way that there's always been a kind of, you know, the the ethics you have in your story and what you're trying to push is it's just a really strong and powerful space, I think. And to close, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I think just not to be scared of the unknown. I think there's so much like mystery and beauty to not knowing how things are going to unfold. And I think if you know, you just, I just wouldn't have done any of the things I did. Um, You know, there was, from such an early age, I was put into a situation where there was so much kind of unknown whether or not that was like how my character would develop in Harry Potter and how many films we'd go for that was already this kind of I just just went for it and I think that's part of something I don't I think if I tried to control that first scenario of the audition that I first went on in Harry Potter I wouldn't have got it but it was the fact (laughs) that I was just like this is fun we're just like on an audition this is really cool that got me the part you know so I think it's that kind of not just not losing that love for the unknown Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.